All right, well, good morning, church. All right, well, we're in Genesis 42 this morning. Joseph is now the governor of Egypt. He's uh, second in command. He was made governor when he was around 30 years old. He has been, and uh, that was at the beginning of the seven years of plenty, and now we are at the early years of the famine. So Joseph is around 37 years old, if not older. So he's been in Egypt for at least 20 years at this point. But before we get into Genesis 42 this morning, I just wanted to remind you, not that you had forgotten, that from the start of Genesis to now, this is not a work of fiction. This is history, right? This is a historical document. And uh, especially when we start getting into the early history of Israel, which we are now, uh, when we got into Joseph and, and such, um, as God is forming them into a nation. Um, and we see that even later in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of archaeological evidence to support the fact that Joseph and his family, Jacob, his father, and all the rest, when they all come down to uh, Egypt, there's about 75 of them in total at that time, um, which will you know, be later in, the, in Genesis. We're not there yet. But when they all come down <coughs> there, there's a lot of archaeological evidence to show that, number one, it actually happened. Uh, number two, there, all those years later, 300-some-odd years later, there, wasn't actually, there was actually an exodus. Uh, and there's a documentary, if you want to watch it. It's more about the exodus than it is about this time that we're speaking about right now. But the documentary is called Patterns of Evidence, Exodus. And they have other documentaries, too. They've made a couple documentaries on the Red Sea and one on Mount Sinai, but I've only watched so far. I've only watched the Exodus one. And it provides a lot of uh, historical and archaeological evidence to show that the Exodus actually happened and that Joseph and Jacob and everyone actually lived in Egypt. I told you that one of the things that the Egyptian culture had or they were known for was lots of scribes. They kept lots of records about things, right? So, matter of fact, this picture, oops, this picture they don't have behind me, this picture right here, let me actually get you a better one. <coughs> um, here you go. That picture right there, that's an example of the archaeological evidence that they have um, because this is called the Hyksos Sphinx, and they have more than one of these. But Hyksos, and we did talk about this earlier, it means foreign king or it means shepherd king. It's, the idea is that it wasn't Egyptian, that they weren't Egyptian. All right? There's been many times in uh, Egypt's history that Egypt was ruled not by Egyptians, but they were ruled by foreign kings. And so this is a Hyksos Sphinx. And this one is from the time period of when Joseph and Jacob and everyone would have been down in Egypt. So this is a foreign king, or as, the, as it's also translated, a shepherd king. Um, and there's also hieroglyphics, and I don't have, I didn't get a picture of those, but they've found hieroglyphics, and I've seen the picture of it, of a crown and a staff, a shepherd's staff, crook's staff, um, within Egypt's hieroglyphics, also showing shepherd king that ruled uh, in Egypt. Why is that important? Because when, when uh, Joseph's brothers come down into Egypt and Pharaoh says, um, he asks them, what's your occupation? What do you guys do? And uh, they say, uh, we're shepherds, right? We're shepherds, as our fathers were. That's what they did. That's what they do. That's what they did. That's what they did while they were in Egypt. They were shepherds. And so, shepherd king. So we have records that show that these shepherds or that these foreign rulers, that, and also as they're later referred to in Egyptian um, records, they're also, that same word is also referred to as captives. So they're known as shepherd kings or foreign rulers or captives, depending on time period. Um, they were given, we have records that show that they were given land within Egypt and their capital city was a city called Avaris. And archaeological excavations have revealed evidence when they found this city, because it was under another city, 
right? So archaeological excavation, they, are, they were doing work on one city. They found that there was another city underneath it, and that city turned out to be avarice. So the archaeological excavations have revealed within this city evidence of a clearly foreign Semitic population within Egypt. And because they found that the housing styles were similar to that of Canaan, I was going to get a picture of the housing things that they've excavated, and I forgot. And then they had Levantine-style um, weapons and pottery, and Levant is just the area around Israel. So everything that they found uh, was very Jewish, was very Hebrew. It, it, it matched everything that was around the area of Israel and didn't match anything that was normally found in Egypt at all. Right? <clears throat> they even found donkeys buried in the graves with people, which is not an Egyptian practice. Okay. Uh, they also found sacrificial remains, notably excluding pig, what leading excavators to speculate that there was some form of kosher system that was in place at the time. And of course, they found large food storage silos were also discovered at the site, which is interesting because, of course, what was Joseph in charge of? The grain, right? And dispersing the grain to all the nations that came down into Egypt. Now, it turns out that they found within this city a large palace. And this palace just so happens to contain 12 tombs. And one of the tombs is more grander than all the other tombs, as in this tomb was for a ruler or for a king. Yet, while all the other tombs had bones in them or remains, this tomb was empty. It didn't have any bones. Why is that significant? Because Joseph asks that his bones be carried out of Egypt, which they did many hundreds of years later. And within this palace, they also found uh, a statue. Fragments of a statue, actually, because someone had destroyed it purposefully, broken it into little pieces. But the statue showed a seated figure with a colored striped robe. They could actually see the paint still on the back of the statue. And this is uh, a picture here. And this ruler would have been a dignitary, and he was without a doubt a non-Egyptian ruler. The middle picture is a computer recreation of what the statue would look like. The two little pictures there are actual fragments of the statue that they found. So you can see what they built the computer illustration from, and you can see the colored stripes on the back of the statue on the fragment there. They refer to this statue today as the statue of Joseph. That's who it, I mean, it just fits. That's just one of, you know, those are just some of the many archaeological things that they have found to show that, they, that Joseph and his family actually lived in Egypt, and and that they actually ruled in Egypt, and they actually grew, grew in Egypt. Here's a... Uh, um, a picture of some hieroglyphics that are found in Egypt, and this is called the Hyksos uh, hieroglyphics. And what it shows is um, the Egyptians are in the front wearing the white. The rest are foreign people. You can actually kind of see the difference as far as the pigment of their skin, right? So you have the Egyptians and the rest are all foreign, and this was at a funeral. This is what this was for of when one of the rulers passed away. But what it shows is, is that there were a lot of foreign, Asiatic, which stands for Asian, usually, but not Asian in the sense that you think of Japanese or anything like that. Because remember, Turkey was considered, uh, yeah, Asia, right? Asia Minor. So, uh, so that showed that they lived there in Egypt. But now one of the most interesting things that they've found is this. This is a, a, a royal scarab seal. And they've found over 30 of these that all belonged to or were all as, ascribed to one person. Right? And the name on all of these royal scarab seals that they found, and just so you know, they found the majority of these in Canaan, not in Egypt, though they have found some in Egypt. Right? They all belong to someone named Yaqub Har. And Yaqub is the exact transliteration of the Semitic name Jacob. 
right? And Har means mountain or hill is what it means, which would have been possibly a family name or a family suffix that the Egyptians attached to, to like set his family apart from the rest. And the reason we say that is, is that they also found another name ascribed within this city, uh, etched into like a door frame, so you would know whose house it was. Um, Sakirhar, and Sakir is uh, similar to Issachar, which would have been one of the sons of Jacob. So anyway, I just show you that as we you know continue on through the book of Genesis, so that you understand that that this is more than just a great, compelling, moving story, one of the greatest stories in the Bible. It's actually true, right? Not that you guys doubted that, but this this actually happened. This is actually historical fact. There's evidence to show that they actually lived down there. And then later, that, that there as evidence to show that they actually left the area, right? That the Exodus, right? So that's all fun stuff. And uh, there's even more than that. If you ever wanted to, uh, you know, look into it on your own, there's a lot of interesting uh, evidence and compelling evidence that you can read. Written records as well, which I wasn't going to, I mean, I can't read Egyptian, so I'm not going to try and bring them out to you, but there's all kinds of records out there. Uh, hieroglyphics of the Exodus and uh, things like that that you can look at. So, let's read Genesis chapter 42. It says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. <clears throat> and he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, are your, ser we your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest this day is with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Didn't I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them, and he bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. And then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them saying, 
The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only, le- only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word, and I thank you, Lord, for the message that you have in it for us. And I pray, Lord, that you speak this right to our hearts, that your spirit to speak it to us, Lord, so that we can grow closer to you, that we can rely on you and just remember, Lord, that in the midst of everything that's going on in our lives right now, that you have a plan, that you're working it out, and we just need to be looking for it, looking for the work that you are doing. We just thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all the earth was coming to Egypt to buy grain. This was a large, severe famine. Right? It affected more than just one little tiny geographical area. Jacob and his sons, of course, were shepherds. They raised cattle and sheep and, and all this. And the economy is damaged now because, you know, due to the famine. And it doesn't matter how much money you have and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are because Jacob, of course, was wealthy. Uh, money can't buy you grain if there's no grain to be bought. However, there was grain to be bought, but it was in Egypt. And it was some easily, you know, 300 miles away by camel, right? And they say riding the camel really isn't as hard as they say it is. Once you get over the first hump, the rest is easy. Uh, yeah. But so there was grain in Egypt, and so it says, the first thing that they said, it says right here, Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt in verse 1. And he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? So what he's saying is, why are you standing around? Right? We need grain. We have a large amount of people to feed. Why are you just looking at each other? And what that implies is, it gives you the impression that the brothers are somewhat reluctant to go to Egypt. They don't want to go. Why? Because they've been living with a terrible secret right, for over 20 years. They sold Joseph to some Ishmaelite traders for 20 shekels of silver, and the Ishmaelites took Joseph to Egypt. And the brothers then deceived the father, Jacob, into thinking that Joseph was killed. And probably every time that the brothers look towards Egypt or think of Egypt or anyone mentions Egypt, all they can think of is the fact that they sold their brother off. And it, lied to their dad, right? So they're still haunted by this deception. They're still haunted by their sin. And so their dad, Jacob, is insistent. He said, hey, the grain is in Egypt. We've got to go to Egypt to get the grain. What are you guys standing around for? Go, right? Go or we're going to die. It's a simple mathematical equation here. Do you want to live or die? Go to Egypt and get the grain so that we can live. And they're like, oh, man right? This is going to be a terrible trip. But they do it, right? The 10 brothers form their little camel caravan or whatever they're taking, probably camels, but not Benjamin, the youngest, because remember, the only other son that Jacob had with Rachel, right? The wife he loved more besides Joseph was Benjamin. And he wanted no harm to come to Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, mind you, was in his early 20s at this point, probably his mid-20s. He, was no, he wasn't a young kid. It wasn't like he was five or seven years old or something like that, had to stay home with dad. He could have gone with the brothers too, but he's like, no, I'm not letting Benjamin go. I'm not going to lose my second favorite son, right? So he's not going. So Jacob is scared, and he's still grieving over the loss of Joseph. So Benjamin stays. 
So the brothers head out to Egypt, much to their chagrin, right? Every step is a reminder of their past sin, as it were, as they get closer to Egypt. And they join the caravan of people heading on down to Egypt because everyone was heading on down to Egypt to get grain. It was probably a pretty busy highway at this point. Though the, it wasn't a quick trip by any means. I don't know how fast camels go, but how fast can you travel 300 miles by camel? I don't. Some people say it was a six-week round-trip journey. It seems a little long to me. I think they could probably be a little faster than that. But it was a long journey down to Egypt and back. It wasn't like an overnight trip, just right, so you understand. So what are the odds, then, that the brothers, right, what are the odds that the brothers would wind up at the exact place where Joseph is? Because remember, Joseph was overseeing all the distribution of the grain, personally. That was his job. But there was more than one place where the grain was stored. So he wasn't always at the same place every time. So what, I mean, what are the odds that Joseph would be overseeing the exact granary that they arrived at to purchase grain? What are the odds? What does C-3PO say to Han Solo about the odds of safely navigating an asteroid field? Right? 3,720 to 1, something like that, was Han Solo say? Don't tell me the odds. Right? The odds were not in their favor. Let's just say that. But what do, we, what do we remember? Who's the conductor of this orchestra? God is. This, 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 God had already sent Joseph ahead of them down to Egypt to prepare for this. God is orchestrating their moves so that they show up and arrive right where Joseph is. Joseph is overseeing right, the entire thing. He personally oversaw the entire thing. And he is at the exact place where they show up because he personally handled all the permits or whatever you had to have to get grain. He personally oversee all of it. So even if he hadn't have been there when they arrived, they were going to run into him sooner or later because as it turns out, he, you had to go through him to get grain. No one could buy any grain until they dealt with Joseph. So Joseph himself, you know he had to anticipate that possibly one day his family was going to show up for grain. There was a famine. Everybody needed it. The famine was in Canaan. He knew where his family was. He had to you know, anticipate that one day, sooner or later, Someone from his family was going to show up to buy grain. And so they come. The brothers come and they do what? They bow down to Joseph. Right? Rewind back to Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 8. Right? It, what does it say? It said, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Right? And he told them the dream. He says, here's the dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And yet here's this dream being fulfilled. They don't know it because they don't know they're standing in front of Joseph. He knows it. He remembers right when he sees them bowing down in front of him. Right? Remember when they sold Joseph into slavery, they thought they had defeated this little dreamer. Right? We've sent this little annoying boy off. He's not going to annoy us with his dreams anymore. But instead what they did is they helped fulfill his dreams. That's how God works things out. Right? What did they say back then as they plotted to kill him originally? Again, go back to Genesis chapter 37. Right? They see him coming. Oh, here comes the little dreamer. Right? And they start plotting to kill him. What do they say? They say, we will see what will become of his dreams. Right? That's what they, well, guess what? They did see what became of his dreams. In I mean, really. Because here they are right in front of him bowing down. They were right. They didn't know it yet, but they were right. They are seeing what became of his dreams, and that is that dreams came true. Joseph recognized them immediately because they hadn't changed much in 20 years. They were the older brothers. However, Joseph had changed quite a bit. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery, right? He's at least 37 now, if not maybe a couple years older than that. Right? He was now clean-shaven. He was bald. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a beard. He walked like an Egyptian. Right? He wasn't dressed like a slave or a young shepherd boy. He was dressed like a king. 
right? He had the signet ring. He had garments of fine linen. He had gold chains around his neck. He was second in command of all of Egypt. He did not look like the 17-year-old that they sent off into slavery. They looked pretty much the same. Maybe they had a few more gray hairs and some wrinkles. But still, they looked pretty much the same. He recognized them right away. They had no idea who they were bowing down in front of. So they bow down to him, and he immediately starts treating them roughly, it says, like strangers, and he accuses of them of being spies. And it seems like a mean thing. Like, I mean, if you, see, you haven't seen your brothers in 20 years, and they finally show up, they're right there in front of you, and you're like, it's my brothers. My family has shown up. And you start being like, who are you? You guys are spies. They're like, what? No, we're not. We just came down to get grain, right? But this was actually a, a legitimate concern for Egypt, actually, right? Because they would have people coming in trying to figure out how possibly they could invade Egypt during this time to get all the wealth and grain that Egypt had because of the famine. So this was something that they were trying to look out for. However, Joseph knew that they weren't spies. Joseph has a purpose in everything that he's doing here with his brothers. Now, remember, Joseph is speaking to them in Egyptian, in one of the little uh, graphic novels I have, one I have specifically on the book of Genesis that's drawn by Crum. He's an artist from the 60s who's, none of his art would be something you'd want to look at. But he, it was very graphic and stuff, but he actually went and illustrated the book of Genesis. He just, he, f he felt this desire to, to do it. And it's very accurate graphic depiction of what happens in the book of Genesis. I found this part kind of funny because if you're reading through it and you look at this particular uh, chapter, chapter 42, and Joseph is speaking to his brothers, when it shows the, what he's speaking, it's all just hieroglyphics. <laughs> Joseph, Joseph is speaking in Egyptian. It's all just hieroglyphics. And then you have the interpreter right next to him speaking to them in Hebrew, probably, right? So anyway, he's speaking to them in Egyptian. There's an interpreter in between. He asks who they came from, who they are, etc. They refer to themselves as servants. We're your servants. We're honest men, right? We're all sons of one man. There's 12 brothers. One of them has passed away. One, the youngest, is back with our father. And, uh, you know, but we're honest men. And he's like, I don't trust you. You're spies. Jail. Go to jail, all of you. Put them in confinement for three days. And they just take them all off and put them in jail for three days. And on the third day, I mean, originally he told them that they all had to stay in Egypt and they could send one brother back to get the younger brother, Benjamin. And if they brought Benjamin Jack that back, that would show that they were honest. Right? But by the end of three days, he changes it around. He says, okay, you can all go back except for one brother. Well, keep one brother here. The rest of you go back, get your youngest brother and come back. And that'll prove to me you're honest. Right? Your words, it's, what does he say? Your words will be verified and you will live. But how did he start that conversation after he let him out of jail? What did he tell him? He said, he feared God. Right? Elohim. Can you imagine? If they were really paying attention and not so scared out of their boots, they weren't really listening, that, that for this ruler of the land, right, second in command of all of Egypt, go down to him and say, listen, I fear Elohim. I worship God. How does he even know that they do? Are they paying attention to what Joseph is saying to them? Right, because if they were, if they were really listening to what he was saying, they should have found, I mean, their ears should have perked right up. What? How do you know that we worship Elohim? Who are you? Right? But he tells them, listen, you need to trust me. I worship God. It should have changed the entire conversation for him. Right? It should have made their ears perk up. Who's this Egyptian ruler that, that, that worships Elohim? Right? Because Joseph didn't want his brothers to fear him as much as he wanted his brothers to trust him. Which is why he told them that. Right? If the brothers were, of course, wise enough to consider what that really meant when he told it to them. It would have been a great comfort to them if they had actually comprehended what was being told. Yet, you're going to see what it brings. Because what's Joseph doing? He's testing his brothers. 
to see if they've actually changed or not in 20 years? Are you still the same deceiving brothers that sold me off into slavery, that wanted to kill me, who I pleaded with not to do that, and you didn't listen? Are you the same guys that you were 20 years ago, or have you changed? This is what he's trying to find out. But when he tells them what they're going to do, right? We're going to send you all back, but one brother's going to stay here. You're going to bring your younger brother back. And if you do that, that's going to show me that you're honest and you'll live. Something interesting happens. And what it is is that their guilty conscience kicks into overdrive, right? I've heard it said that our conscience can be like a circus-trained poodle, Right? You whistle once, it stands up. You whistle twice, it rolls over. You whistle a third time, it plays dead. That's your conscience. Another way uh, to look at it, I heard, is this. A conscience is like a sundial. If it's outside and it's a sunny day, it tells the, the correct time. Right? If it's dark at night, it's not telling that great you can't you don't know what time it is if you're in nighttime and you're shining a flashlight on it you can make it read anything you want it to read that's like your conscience it's only correct when the light's shining on it in other words when god is directing it it's the only time it's correct because every other time if it's left up to you you're in the dark and you're just shining your own light on it, and you can make it point whatever way you want to go. You can make your conscience do whatever, make it feel right for whatever it is. Their conscience was now barking at them, right? It was kicked into overdrive. Ephesians 5.13 tells us that anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. They, right, they thought that they had, their sin was a secret. But now they don't feel that way. Now they feel different. There's actually a quote by A.W. Tozer that says, no sin is private. It may be secret, but it's not private. Sin is three-dimensional and it has consequences in three directions, towards God, towards self, and towards society, which means everyone else around you. And the brothers for 20 years have been living with the effects of their sin, not just personally, but also how they saw it play out in the life of their father who has now just been grieving for 20 years over the loss of Joseph that they made him believe was that he was dead. And so what do the brothers say? It's interesting because as soon as he tells them this, hey, you know, leave one of your brothers here. Go and do this. You're not going to die. Right? They start talking to each other, not understanding that Joseph can understand every word they're saying. Right? And they start talking to each other. And this is what they say. They say, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. They're referring to Joseph in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Referring to Joseph back when he was 17. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So what are they saying? Right? I mean, it gives you a little more insight into what happened that day when Joseph was 17. But Reuben is saying, hey, there's a reckoning coming now, right? The ledger books are going to be balanced out because of your, the sin you committed. Now God's coming to balance it out, and he's going to take it from you. He's taking it from you. So what are they saying? They're saying, hey, God is punishing us for our sin. Now the time has come that God is punishing us for our sin. This is our fault. All this is happening to us down in Egypt right now because of what we did to our brother over 20 years ago. We've been living with that guilt and shame all this time, and now all this bad stuff is happening to us because of it. Right? Because a guilty conscience sees every trouble as a penalty for your sin. And that's how they see it, because they had a guilty conscience. Here's a fun fact. I don't know if you know this or not. Do you know that the United States government, specifically the Department of Treasury, has something called the Federal Conscience Fund? It was started in 1811. This fund collects money from people. They voluntarily send it in. It's referred to as donations, except you can't declare it on your taxes because they know in some way they cheated the government, possibly. 
Right? People have sent in money because they took army blankets for souvenirs when they left service. Uh, they cheated on postage somewhere. They cheated on their income tax. Right? Whatever their guilty conscience is you know, nagging them about, they send in money, they donate to this federal conscience fund in hopes of balancing out their guilty conscience. Right? One man wrote the IRS, he said, I cheated on my taxes and I can't sleep at night. Here's a check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest I owe. <laughs> right? The largest donation they received is over $155,000. However, they said since 2015, so almost 10 years ago, the number of donations and the annual amount that's been received by the Conscience Fund, which has made over millions of dollars, right? Uh, somewhere under 10 million, I think, it's made uh, since it's been around. Donations, however, since 2015 have begun to dwindle. For example, in 2014, they received $1.1 million in donations in, in 2014. The next year, I mean, not the next year, but a couple years later, in 2016, they only received 23000 Right? And so they, they say that there's two things why the numbers are going down. None of these are positive. There's two things. Right? One is that there's a correlation between dropping donations and historically low levels of trust in the government. So people don't do, aren't given any money because they don't trust the government. Right? And two, people are just less guilty in the sense that they don't have guilty consciences anymore about their sin. Right? More and more people have no remorse concerning their cheating or you know, cheating on their taxes or whatever it is that they may feel about. That their hearts are more hardened and they don't feel the guilt or the remorse that they may have felt 10 years ago. They don't feel it anymore. Less and less peel f people feel guilty, so less and less people are donating to the conscience fund anymore. Which is, it's just odd that we have a conscience fund, mind you, but still. Right. Here's the truth, though. It doesn't matter if we feel less guilty or even not guilty at all concerning our sin. We are still all guilty before God. Romans 2.15 says that uh, our conflicting thoughts either accuse us or excuse us. And for the brothers here, for Joseph's brothers, their guilty conscience, their conflicting thoughts were accusing them. God is punishing us for our sins. We've been carrying this weight for 20 some odd years. They've been carrying this shame for all these years. The weight of that was crushing them. Right? Reuben had told them, this is a reckoning for the blood of Joseph. Right? His blood was on their heads and they were now paying for it, which means that they actually thought at this time, what that means is that they actually thought that Joseph was dead. Right? And what they're actually doing, without knowing it, is that they're confessing their sins in front of their brother who's hearing the whole thing. Matter of fact, it overwhelms him, right? He turns away, he leaves the room and cries. He's so overwhelmed by what he heard, right? They're actually confessing their sins in front of him, not knowing who it is. It over, it's overwhelming for Joseph. He cries. He, he comes back and he takes Simeon. He binds him up and he takes him away. He fills their grain bags. He restores their money without them knowing about it. And he sends them on their way home. Right. And on the way, they stop to feed the animals and they open up one of the grain bags and realize that their money is right there in the top. Right? And it says that their, their hearts sank, their hearts failed them, that they started trembling. Right? They're like, oh no, I'm going to die. Why? Because they thought God was punishing them. They thought God was punishing them. The, the, the Egyptians find out that we still have our money in our bags. How do they get back on our bags? They're going to think we stole the grain. They're going to come and kill us. This is a punishment from God. Right? That's all they could think about. They didn't say, I mean, they say, what is this that God has done to us? But they're not saying that in a positive sense. They're not saying, they're not saying look, at what, how, look at how the Lord has blessed us. Our money's back in our bags. They're like, oh, no, our money's back in our bags. God's punishing us, right? They're not saying, oh, man, God's provided. 
or any of that stuff. I mean, they're just thinking, we're going to get killed. Again, a guilty conscience sees every, sees every trouble as a penalty for sin. And our conscience has a way of digging up the past and reawakening our doubts and our fears. And they, man, they were wide awake for the brothers now. So they continue home. And like I said, it's possibly a long journey, right? Who knows how long it took them. But they get home and then they recount the whole story to their father, Jacob. You're not going to believe what happened, right? So they tell him everything. Listen, dad, the the Lord of the land spoke harshly to us. That's kind of how I see him doing it. Like they're, they're whining to dad. Man, he spoke mean to us. Man, he wasn't really polite, Dad. Right? But he took he called us spies. Said we were there just to, you know, spy on the land. And he took Simeon and he left he bound him up and he's <laughs> sorry, Dad, Simeon didn't come back. He's bound up and in jail in Egypt. And on the way home we noticed that in all our sacks our money was still there. And they open up all the sacks there in front of Jacob, and they find that all the money is there, right? And Jacob's not like, well, we should ask God about this. We should maybe pray and find out what's going on. This is very odd. No, he just says, you've bereaved me of my children, right? All this has come against me. Woe is me. I can't believe that you guys are continuing to punish me like this, right? He says, he, he says, if I give you Benjamin and Benjamin doesn't come back, I'm going to go to the grave, right, with my gray hairs because of you guys. It's going to kill me, right? And so the impression that we get of Jacob in this chapter that, is that he has now become bitter and pessimistic about everything because of his grief over the thought of Joseph and his sons. He's not really even really concerned about Simeon too much. I don't care. Simeon's in jail. Just don't take Benjamin back down to Egypt, right? He just seems to be bitter and pessimistic about everything because of this calamity. He believes another disaster is on the way. When's the next shoe going to drop, right? What's going to happen next? I don't even want to get up and open the door. I can't believe you guys have cursed me like this. He's blaming it all on his, his sons. He blames all these problems on his sons. And the impression, of course, that we get about the brothers here that they're still haunted by their guilt and shame that they've been carrying with them for 20 years. Yet, if Jacob only knew, yet, if the brothers only knew, if they could only see what God was orchestrating, if they could only see the plan that God had worked out for them, God was bringing them to repentance and he was orchestrating a huge reconciliation They just couldn't see it yet. God was accomplishing his divine purposes through dreams and through a famine and through Joseph. They just couldn't see it yet, right? Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's what God's doing, all that he pleases. So when I look at this chapter and I want to see how it applies to us, I I think that that this is a warning to us. This is a warning to us about how we let our sin affect our lives. And in that, how it affects God's blessings in our lives. Because we don't see what God is doing when we're only focused on ourselves and our own problems. The brothers couldn't see what God was doing. Jacob couldn't see what God was doing. They didn't even contemplate that this was something God was doing in, in a positive way. They only thought it was punishment from God. Because they were all too focused on all these issues and problems. And not once did they ever bring them up to God. So we can be like Jacob, where we can become bitter and pessimistic about all the issues that are happening to us. And we can just sit around going, you know what? I don't really want to go anywhere today. I don't want to step outside because every time I do, something bad happens. Right? Oh, is that another bill in the mail? Of course it is. I wasn't expecting that. Of course I wasn't. What, you told me the car broke down on your way home? Of course it did, right? Should never let you drive the car. You're always the problem. You know how many times I would repair that car? I mean, we just go on and on and on about all these problems that are going on in life. We're not, and we're so focused on these things. We're so, we're, ha- we're throwing this pity party, 
you know, for ourselves and our lives, like everything. I mean, you know, one of the guys I work with, um, you know, he just had all these problems happen day after day. Uh, this uh, company screwed up this order, supposed to deliver a desk to his apartment, and the delivery company called and said, sorry, we can't make it out. Matter of fact, we're not going to be able to deliver it at all. He had already paid for it. He had to call and get a refund on the desk. He had to go to the store, buy the last one they had on display. He had to carry it, bring it home himself, but he couldn't pay it. He couldn't put it together himself. He, he paid someone through the place to come and put it together. That was part of the services they offered. The guy calls on the day he's supposed to come put it together. says, sorry, I can't make it. Um, the next day he wakes up to come to work, goes out to start his car. His car sounds like his engine's about to explode and seize. He's like, what's going on with my car? Realizes someone had tried to cut out his catalytic converter when he looked under the car. Found that there were pieces hanging down. Thankfully, they didn't get his catalytic converter. They still found the blade of the cutting tool stuck up into his thing. His catalytic converter was still there. They didn't get it out. So he didn't have to wait six weeks to get the catalytic converter because that's the current wait time. If you have that happen to you, um, he was able to get it fixed in a day and drive his car to work. He only missed one day of work. And the guy finally showed up to put the desk together. And even though he thought he could put it together in an hour, it took him three and even though the guy was upset, he was, you know, cursing up a storm in their apartment because he couldn't get this thing together right. He was there to help calm the guy down and let him, you know, let's go take a walk and, you know, come back and work on it and stuff like that. W all these things happen, you know, how they happen. They just fall right on top of each other, one thing after another, after another, after another, to the point that you're overwhelmed, that you can't see past it. You don't realize, wait a minute, what is God doing here? What am I supposed to learn from this? What's God trying to show me? What's God doing here? Maybe he wants you to help that person that's been brought into your life through this, right? Our, our, we don't see what God is, how God is blessing us or what God has provided for us, right? Because we become pessimistic and bitter. Our sight is just clouded with worry and fret. We're, we're not, we think God is not working in our lives when yet he is doing miraculous things for us right in front of us and we're blind to it. Right? Jacob should have remembered that God would answer him in his time of distress and that God has been with him all of his days as God had already told him. That God promised Jacob that he would be with him and keep him. Jacob should have remembered that. And instead of just letting all that bitterness and grief work up inside him and just continue to fester and grow and grow and grow until one day it's going to explode. He should have called out to God, and God would have answered him, right? But Jacob, much like his father Isaac in his old age, had become somewhat spiritually blind in his old age, in his grief and his fear. So we get like Jacob. We can choose to be that way or not. I recommend not. But we can choose to be that way, or we can get to be like the brothers, right? Because we've been holding on to the, our guilt and our shame because of our sin that we think was secret or in private or that no one knows about. But we know about it, and it's been eating away at you, at your heart, at your soul, and you haven't done anything about it. We've forgotten that Christ died to set us free thinking that we have to pay for this on our own, right? That there's a reckoning that's going to come. Somehow I'm going to, this is going to get balanced out. God's going to punish me somehow for what I've done. Every time something goes wrong, we just think that God is punishing us for our sins. We can be like that if we want to. I don't recommend it, but we can be that way. We, we don't forget this. Don't forget this one simple thing. Christ took our punishment, right, on the cross. He took that for us. In our place, on the cross, God disciplines those he loves. He does not punish those he loves. So our motto, unfortunately, all too often is just like what Jacob said here. All this has come against me. Right? A day of reckoning has come upon us, as Reuben said. Woe is me. That's often our motto. But remember this, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does that mean? That means a, rec a recognition of our guilt. Because if you feel someone's telling you you're guilty, or you feel your guilty conscience speaking to you, 
That's probably the Holy Spirit telling you, hey, what about this? Shouldn't we deal with this? And what's that supposed to do? A recognition of our guilt should drive us towards God. Right? Our guilt should drive us towards the cross. Yet often our guilt will tell us to keep carrying our shame until we've paid for it ourselves somehow. You can't do that. That's a lie. Christ paid for it. So instead, what should our motto be? How about Romans 8.28? We know that for those who, look God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that would be a good motto. What about Romans 8.35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. The answer is no. Nothing can separate you from Christ. That would be a good motto to remember. But remember this. Despite what you're going through, because you think, well, I'm going through these things. I can't see that God's blessing me. I can't see that God's working. I have all these problems. Here's one thing to remember. Joseph blessed and provided for his brothers when they didn't know who he was, when they didn't know what he was doing, and before they had been reconciled together. Right? They didn't ask for repentance yet. They hadn't asked for forgiveness. Nothing. They didn't even know Joseph was there. Yet he loved them, and he cared for them. He gave to them, and they didn't even know it. Right? Because they couldn't see the blessing if it bit them. So instead of letting our lives be ruined by continuing to wait around in our guilt and our distress and our fear, instead of being blinded to what God is doing in our lives because we can't see through the windshield that's covered in sorrow and shame, right? instead of thinking that God is punishing us or treating us unjustly, like, how could God do this to me? Quit suffering. Quit suffering under the burden of your fear or your guilt. Right? These things don't need to dominate your life. And be reminded that Jesus has canceled the record of debts against you. He has nailed it to the cross, and with that you have been set free. Right? Be reminded of his faithfulness. Be reminded of his love. Be reminded of his grace and his mercy. Stop the pity party long enough to see what glorious work that the Lord is doing in your life and through your life right here and right now. Even in the midst of all the other stuff that's going on. Come and see what the Lord is doing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, and I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you just help us with this, that you help us take the focus off ourselves and continue to put it on you so that we can see the work that you're doing in our lives, and we're not going to be focused on all the other things that cause us to have guilty consciences or, or shame or sorrow or fear or whatever it is that we're experiencing. Lord, let us call out to you so you'll answer us in our time of distress instead of just wallowing in our distress and thinking that all is done for. Let us see the work that you are doing so that we can be thankful and that we can build our faith and we continue to be strengthened and walk in the path that you have for us. Let us, Lord, just continue to hold on to you and turn to you in these times. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.